can take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 2. We're currently preaching through the books of Samuel. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 2, continuing on with our study of the life of King David. We most often refer to David as king, but so far we've yet to witness him take the throne. David has the promise, but he doesn't have the crown. And that changes in our passage today. It's here in 2 Samuel chapter 2 that the Lord's promise of kingship for David begins to come to pass. 2 Samuel 2, you can follow along with me now as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 2. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which city shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, every one with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you, because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was forty years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab the son of Zariah and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkat Hazurim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was swift, was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left hand from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left, and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. 
Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amah, which lies before Geha on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the men of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants nineteen men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin three hundred and sixty of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God now bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together to that end. Father, we thank You for the inspired Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments that reveal to us, Father, perfectly and completely and infallibly the mind of God in the human face of Jesus Christ. Father, we know that whatever You have spoken and written down through Your prophets long ago was written down for our instruction. And so we pray now that You would give us ears to hear and that the instruction of the Scriptures would bear fruit in our lives. Father, help us to be careful not to be hearers of the Word only, but doers also. Give us grace to hear, God. Please keep me from error and please grant Your people discernment that we might grow in grace and that Christ might be magnified. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the opening chapter of the Gospel of Mark, we read that Jesus came into Galilee preaching the good news of the Kingdom of God. This is significant for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that it reminds us that the Kingdom of God was at the heart of Jesus' ministry. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Well, From His own mouth, Jesus gives us the answer. He is the King over God's kingdom. He is the One who will reign over His people in redemption. This is where Jesus' ministry begins, friends. Not with a miracle, but with a message that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It would be a mistake, however, to conclude that the message of God's kingdom began with the ministry of Jesus. The kingdom of God not only lies at the heart of Jesus' ministry, it's also at the heart of the Bible's entire storyline. Think about it, friends. From, From Genesis to Revelation, what is Scripture narrating for us? God's determined purpose to gather His people in His place under His redemptive rule. God's people, God's place, God's rule. That's the good news of the kingdom of God. And it's central to not only Jesus' ministry, but it's central to the entire Bible. That centrality is very clear in our passage this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 2. 
On the surface, this chapter is the account of a political struggle in ancient Israel. Who will have the power over the confederation of Israel's twelve tribes? But when we press a bit deeper, we find that this passage is about more than politics. The founding of David's earthly kingdom points ahead to an even greater kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, ruled by David's descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's the key to understanding this passage as Christians and in light of the Gospel. We read the Old Testament as Christians. We're not interested merely in the history, but also in how it leads us to Christ. The kingdom Jesus proclaimed in Mark 1 is present in 2 Samuel 2, albeit in seed form. The physical manifestations are going to be different, and we have to account for the progression of redemptive history across various covenants, but the spiritual realities are the same. The kingdom of Mark 1 is here in 2 Samuel 2. This passage is an individual episode in the Bible's larger kingdom narrative. So what do we witness in this text? God's kingdom advancing according to God's purpose and doing so despite the world's opposition. Specifically, this chapter describes four realities connected with the kingdom that God establishes. Each reality comes first in the context of David's earthly kingdom, but then each one can also be bridged from David's day to ours. So that will be our aim today. We want to understand David's kingdom, yes, but then we want to press further and see what this passage might teach us about the kingdom of God. The first reality comes in verses 1-4, to where we see the kingdom is founded by divine direction. The kingdom is founded by divine direction. As the chapter begins, it appears the time is ripe for David to seize the throne of Israel. David is probably about 30 years old at this point, which means he's had the promise for 17, maybe 19 years. What's more, Saul is dead. Saul is gone from the scene. So the way is open for David to ascend to the throne. You see, from all appearances, the time is ripe. David has the promises. He has the promise. He has the open door. All that's left is for David to do is to reach out and grab what we might say belongs to him. Just take it. It's yours. But that's what makes verse 1 so striking and so instructive. David doesn't grasp for what belongs to him. He seeks the Lord's counsel. Notice again verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? You see, David has learned from his time among the Philistines. You'll remember back in 1 Samuel 27 that David did not seek the Lord before moving to Ziklag. And as a result, David ended up in a terrible dilemma. He nearly had to march into battle against his own people. But here in chapter 2, David puts into practice what he has learned. Instead of grasping at his own initiative, instead of leaning on his own understanding, David seeks the Lord's direction. And graciously, the Lord answers. Verse 1 is significant not only because David asks, but because God answers so freely and so graciously. Again, notice the rest of the dialogue. Verse 1, And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go up? And the Lord said, To Hebron. We're not told exactly how this 
divine revelation came to David. It was most likely through Abiathar, the priest, who's been with David for some time. But whatever the case, the significant point is David asks and God answers. And therefore, David is able to act with confidence that comes from knowing God's will. In fact, look at verses 2 and 3 and notice the total break David makes with his sojourning in Philistia. David takes his family and his men with him. He burns the bridges, in other words. There's no going back to Ziklag. There's no going back to live among the Philistines. That's what verses 2 and 3 mean. He's not looking back. David's striding ahead in faith. He's confident that God is fulfilling His promise. But don't miss this point, friends. David's pursuit of the throne is not rooted in his reading of the situation. His confidence does not rest in the fact that the circumstances just seem right. His confidence, his pursuit is grounded in God's direction. And so David moves to Hebron, the city of the patriarchs. And in verse 4, a momentous event occurs. Notice again what the text says, "...and the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah." I know it's only one verse, friends, but let's not miss what this one verse means. God is keeping His Word. God is fulfilling His promise. He chose David to be the king, and now that divine selection is confirmed in time and space. It's confirmed among God's people. This Word is coming to pass. From this point forward, if you want to see where God is working to save sinners, look to David and his line. God's fulfilling His Word. David is crowned king, and the history of redemption takes one more step forward, and it does so entirely on the basis of God's will. But do you notice how small David's kingdom is at this point? Verse 4 is momentous, but it's also small. We, we shouldn't overlook this, friends. David's kingdom has a very small beginning. He's been crowned the king, but so far it's only one tribe. There's no parade. There's no palace. There's no royal trumpets blasting. Nothing. For such an important point in the Bible, it's rather ho-hum. And this ho-hum moment happened by divine direction. In other words, in other words, it was God's will for the kingdom to look rather puny at this point. God did this, this way. And of course, the question you should ask then is, why would God do it like this? If redemptive history is coming to a climax in David, then why not do something more grandiose? Why aren't there parades? Well, quite simply because that's not how God's kingdom works. You see, in His providence, God is using this moment to teach His people, to teach you and me, what His kingdom is like. Do you remember Jesus' parable of the mustard seed in Mark 4? With what can we compare the kingdom of God, Jesus asked. It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. We tend to focus on the growth 
of the seed in that parable. But Jesus' point is actually about beginnings. It's not about growth. It's about beginnings. The kingdom of God starts small. Even obscure. And it's only through the eyes of faith that you can see the kingdom for what it is. And so it is here with David. Don't let the smallness distract you, friends. The kingdom is present. The rule of God is present. It may be a mustard seed now, but it's present nonetheless. Don't let the smallness distract you. And along with that, don't let the smallness discourage you. David's tiny kingdom is saying something to you, brothers and sisters. Most Christians live rather small lives, at least in terms of prestige. It's doubtful that any of us in this room will be remembered past our grandchildren, and certainly none of us will be memorialized in great biographies. Most of us live rather small lives. And most churches have rather small ministries, at least in terms of visible impact. So what do you do when all you can see is how small you are? What do you do when your church appears tiny compared to the lostness of the world? 5,000 people groups unreached. What do you do? You remember the mustard seed. You remember that the global reign of Jesus Christ began with one tribe anointing one man in the city of Hebron. That's what you do. You see, this is what the kingdom is like, friends. It comes in the smallness. Not despite the smallness, but in the smallness. So as the prophet Zechariah would say years later, let's not despise the day of small things. For it's in the smallness that we behold the kingdom of God. It's just one tribe, but there's a day coming when it will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation. So that's the first kingdom reality in 2 Samuel 2. The kingdom is founded by divine direction. The second reality comes in verses 5-7. to The kingdom is proclaimed with a gracious call. The kingdom is proclaimed with a gracious call. The kingship starts in Hebron, but David moves quickly to extend his reign throughout Israel. David is told the story of how the men of Jabesh-Gilead risked their lives to retrieve and bury Saul's body. So in response, David sends them a message. It's actually more like an invitation. And again, it shows David's willingness to be gracious. The king's message has three parts. Notice them with me. It starts off with an expression of gratitude in verse 5. David asks for the Lord to bless them because of their loyalty to Saul. Then there's an offer of royal protection in verse 6. David promises he will do good to Jabesh Gilead because they did good to God's anointed. And finally, there's a request for allegiance in verse 7. David makes a very bold request. He wants Jabesh Gilead to support him just as they supported Saul. Now, when you put all this together, it's clear what David is driving at. He wants a covenant relationship with Jabesh Gilead. That's why his language is so full about faithfulness and steadfast love. That's covenant language. It's not about flattery. He's not buttering them up. This is about covenant. 
David will protect Jabesh-Gilead. And in response, the king calls for Jabesh-Gilead to give their loyalty to him. He wants a covenant. Now, why is David doing this? Well, for one, it's good strategy. Jabesh-Gilead is in the northern part of Israel. And it was an important city in Saul's reign. David's support, however, lies in the south, in the territory of Judah. So, if we were to use an analogy from our day, Jabesh-Gilead is like a swing state. It's the Ohio of northern Israel, or Florida if you prefer the south. It's a swing state. If David can get Jabesh-Gilead to back his kingship, then he could very well swing all ten northern tribes over to his side. So it's good strategy. And there's nothing wrong with acknowledging that. The Lord Jesus Himself said that His followers should be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And that's what David is doing here. It's just wise, good, shrewd strategy. But on another level, David is also revealing what kind of king he will be. He's not a tyrant who rules with the crack of a whip. No, David is a king who calls with the grace of covenant. Understand, friends, David could have demanded allegiance from these people. He could have marched his army to Jabesh-Gilead and forced their knees to bow before him. But that's not how God's king proclaims God's kingdom. He doesn't cajole with harshness. He calls with grace. He doesn't break their backs. He extends His covenant. You see, if we stop with the strategy, we actually miss the point. We miss the beauty of the king's character. It's character that proclaims his dominion with grace. Brothers and sisters, do you see what a wonderful anticipation this is of the gracious reign of the Lord Jesus? Right now, at this very moment, Christ could demand with absolute authority that every knee bow to Him without delay. He is the Lord of the universe. And in an instant, He could extend His reign through His unstoppable power and not a single person would dare to defy Him. He could do it in a moment. But that's not how King Jesus rules, is it? On this side of His return, Christ proclaims His rule with grace. The grace of the Gospel. The Lord Jesus does not lord His kingship over His people, No, Jesus calls to His people, come to Me, all who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the Lord Jesus assures His people, all that the Father gives to Me will come to Me, and whoever comes to Me, I will never cast them out. Those are not the demands of a tyrant. Those are not the ravings of a megalomaniac. Those are the calls of a shepherd. Those are the calls of a Savior who proclaims His kingdom with grace. To be sure, there is a day coming when every knee will bow before the Lord Jesus and there will be no more resistance. That day is coming as sure as the sun rises. But until then, Christ's kingdom advances with the gracious, effectual call of the Gospel. Perhaps you're here this morning and you know that you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. You know that you're not a Christian. Maybe you've heard the truths of Christianity before, 
but you've always been wary of being shackled with the demands of religion. If so, friend, I hope you see here that Christianity does not rest on religious demands you must meet. Christianity rests on the grace of a Savior. And right now, that Savior is calling graciously. His call is going out all across the world, drawing His people effectively to Himself. It's the call of the Gospel. And if you don't know Christ this morning, that call is saying to you, trust in the Lord Jesus, the King who laid down His life and rose again for the salvation of His people. The kingdom is proclaimed with a gracious call, and I pray that even now, the Spirit would give you the faith you need to trust in King Jesus and be saved. The third kingdom reality comes in verses 8-28. to The kingdom is assailed by worldly opposition. The kingdom is assailed by worldly opposition. The tone of the chapter changes in verse 8 as we encounter Abner, the commander of Saul's army. Abner decides he's not going down without a fight. He likes the power that he had in Saul's kingdom and he wants to keep it. This is typically what happens to people when they get power. They want to keep it and then they want more of it. So for the next two chapters, Abner is in the middle of all of the intrigues. You probably noticed that you know, people die in grisly ways in chapter 2. Well, get used to it because it happens again in chapter 3 and then again in chapter 4 and then again in every other chapter for the rest of the book. There's one intrigue after another, and Abner's in the middle of all of them. At least over the next two. Now, there's a lot of action in these verses, 8 to 28. There's a lot of action, and it could be easy to get bogged down in all of the details of who did what to whom and when. But, if we keep our focus on the concept of kingdom, right? it's, it's kingdom that ties this together. If we keep our focus on the concept of kingdom, we can steer our way through the action and arrive at some much-needed application. So notice with me in these verses how the action is organized around kingdom. First off, Abner sets up a rival kingdom. This is the point of verses 8-11. to Abner takes one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, and he sets him up as king in Israel. Now, Ishbosheth may have royal blood, but that's about his only commendable quality. He's not around for very long. Ishbosheth is a puppet. And Abner is the one pulling the strings in this rival kingdom. But therein lies Abner's problem. David is not just any other king. And David's kingdom is not merely a rival administration. David is the Lord's anointed. And David's kingdom rests on God's promise. So by opposing David, Abner is opposing the living God. So this is not only a civil war, this is rebellion against divine authority. Abner sets up a rival kingdom, but he's not finished. He then goes on to provoke David's kingdom. This is the point of verses 12-17. to And here, geography tells the story. Those maps in the back of your Bible, they're actually good for something other than keeping children awake during church. Geography tells the story. Notice in verse 12 that Abner moves from Mahanaim to Gibeon. Mahanaim was likely in the north 
on the eastern side of the Jordan River. It was safely in territory loyal to Saul. But Abner doesn't stay there. He moves to Gibeon, which is on the border with Judah, David's territory. Do you see the provocation? Abner wants to extend his power, and he intends to do so by force. David, of course, can't sit back and allow this provocation to go unanswered, so he sends his commander, Joab, out to meet Abner. Joab and Abner are cut from the same cloth. They're both ruthless. Still, Abner keeps provoking. Notice verse 14. Abner suggests that twelve men from each side face off. You can probably guess Abner's point. The twelve warriors represent the twelve tribes of Israel. Whoever wins gets to rule the country. Now, if you've got two large packs of angry, groaned men armed to the teeth, it's not a good idea to suggest that some of them fight. Because then all of them are going to fight. And that's what happens here. The outcome is not clear at all. The twelve warriors only succeed in killing each other, and as a result, an all-out battle erupts. So it's a grisly scene, but don't lose sight of Abner's role in all of it. He provoked this. It was his decision to move to Gibeon, and then it was his foolish idea to say, let's have some guys fight. He's provoking all of this and escalating it. The action continues, though, and Abner goes to another level. He not only provokes David's kingdom, he also strikes David's kingdom. This is the point of verses 18 to 23. David's commander Joab has two brothers, Abishai and Asahel who are mighty men in their own right. But it seems Asahel is tired of living in Big Brother's shadow, so he decides to win some glory for himself. Asahel decides to go after Abner. And what happens next is exhilarating and awful. Asahel is the Usain Bolt of Israel. He's fast, like a gazelle fast. And he chases after Abner. So you can picture it in your mind. Asahel chasing, Abner running, and the two men are talking back and forth as they run. Abner tries to get Asahel to turn back, but the young man is relentless. That's what it means. He didn't turn to the right or to the left. He's just spoke I'm just running. I'm going to kill you. He just keeps coming. Abner even warns him. He says, you keep coming. I'm going to have to kill you, and I don't want to have to face your brother. And still... Asahel keeps coming, and it's his speed that proves to be his undoing. Notice verse 23. Abner doesn't even have to fight. He just throws on the brakes, and Asahel runs into his own death. He impales himself on Abner's spear. As readers, we're meant to see it as the triumph of experience over youth. This isn't Abner's first battle. But we shouldn't feel any sympathy or any honor towards Abner. This isn't a good scene. And it may look like he had no other choice, but remember, he started the fight. He picked the fight. He's provoking it. And by killing Asahel, he's striking at David's kingdom. The action culminates with the kingdoms at odds. Rival kingdoms provoking, striking, and it just ends with the kingdoms at odds with one another. This is the point of verses 24 to 28. As you would expect, Asahel's brothers want vengeance, so they chase Abner to a hilltop in the territory of Benjamin. 
It's not until Abner gets reinforces from the Benjamites that the fighting ends. But while the fighting stops for now, there's clearly no unity. The kingdoms remain at odds with one another. In fact, look down at the opening line of chapter 3. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. So for now, that's where things stand. With Abner's rival kingdom provoking and striking and antagonizing David's divinely established kingdom. There's a lot of action, but the concept of kingdom ties it all together. Now, after we catch our breath a bit, what are we meant to take away from this action-packed scene? Well, just boil it down to the core, and what do you have? A worldly kingdom opposing the divine kingdom. A worldly kingdom opposing the divine kingdom. Brothers and sisters, is this not what we see in our day? The forces of this world opposing the kingdom of God? Yes, we see it all around us. And that's the takeaway for us. These action-packed verses remind us that that the kingdom of this world is always actively opposed to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of this world is always actively opposed to the kingdom of God. We shouldn't be surprised by this, friends. We shouldn't be surprised when the world opposes believers. For the world has always responded to God's reign with active opposition. You see, there's no neutrality between the world and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there can be no truce. Just as Abner purposefully sought to dominate David's realm, so also the world purposefully seeks to ensnare the people of God. In all spheres of life, the forces of this world are maneuvering, pressing in, and seeking to control God's people. There is no neutrality. And there can be no truce. Culture, media, entertainment, information, all of those forces are formative. They're discipling you in the ways of the world. All of those forces are formative and they're seeking to shape the minds and the hearts of the people who consume them. To put it very bluntly, friends, every sphere of life brings the clash of worldviews. Every sphere of life is a spiritual conflict. And Christians live on the front lines of that conflict. There is no neutrality. Listen, I know, I know that in the past, the church has spoken out against worldliness in ways that were unhelpful and honestly trivial. I understand that. So please don't hear me saying you can't watch certain movies or you can't listen to certain kinds of music. Those prescriptions are far too small to be of any real help. It's like putting a band-aid on a gunshot wound. It just doesn't work. What I am saying, however, is that we need to be much more vigilant against the ways in which this world seeks to take captive the hearts and the minds of God's people. Where do you see the kingdom of God today? Not in a place. It's not a geographic realm. You see the kingdom of God in the lives of the people of God. 
You see God's redemptive reign as His people who have been made alive by the Spirit give evidences of the Holy Spirit's fruit in their lives to the glory of Christ. You see the kingdom of God in the lives of the people of God. So if the world wanted to attack the kingdom of God, where would the world focus? You. Your heart. Your mind. Your life. That's how the world strikes against God's kingdom. That's how the world rises up by seeking to ensnare the people of God. And what this means, friends, is that the daily choices of your individual lives are far more significant than you often think. How you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you spend your free thoughts. It's all far more significant than you often think. The pursuit of godliness is not simply the display of traditional values or Christian morals. It's kingdom warfare. Godliness is resistance. Christ-like character is resistance. And therefore, we need to be much more vigilant against the world's active opposition to the reign of God. And so, I, I have to ask you, I have to ask you, brothers and sisters, are you living under the illusion of neutrality? As though there could be a truce between the world and the kingdom of God. It is very concerning to me when you look at the lives of professing Christians, how friendly they are with the world. It's not neutral. Are you living under that kind of neutrality? It's an illusion. Are you careful against the world's active opposition? Abner's opposition to David's kingdom pictures the world's opposition to God's kingdom and therefore our response should be recognition that leads to renewed vigilance. The kingdom is assailed by worldly opposition. All of this talk of kingdom conflict might have us feeling somewhat uneasily, uneasy. But mercifully, that's not where God's Word leaves us this morning. I'm so thankful for the last paragraph of chapter 2, for it gives us the final kingdom reality that is both encouraging and strengthening. In verses 29-32, to we see that the kingdom is victorious under God's King. The kingdom is victorious under God's King. Abner and his men head back to Mahanaim, while Joab and David's men head back to Hebron. The final outcome of the conflict will have to wait for another day. But there is a hint of where things are headed. Notice verses 30 and 31. Listen for just the numbers. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. So very simply, who's winning? The Lord's anointed, King David. He's winning. Do you see it, friends? The conflict is significant. The battle is costly. And there are going to be consequences as we see next week. But the outcome is secure. The outcome is secure. David's kingdom rests on God's promise. And God's promise can never be broken. Brothers and sisters, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have entered a better kingdom than the kingdom of David. David's kingdom was but a shadow. 
And Christ's kingdom is the reality. And by God's grace, we have come into that kingdom. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul that we read earlier in Colossians 1. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us where? Into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we've already entered the kingdom of God. We've already entered into God's redemptive reign. And yet on this side of Christ's return, we still endure conflict. We still have to battle with the forces of this world, the flesh, and the devil. And at times, it might seem to us as though those forces will win. That our faith will not hold and that we will surrender to the opposition. I know I have moments like that that my faith's not going to make it another day. And I'm sure you do too. And it's in those moments that we need to hear again the good news Jesus came preaching in Mark 1. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The victory is secure, brothers and sisters. Not because we will win the conflict, but because Christ has established His kingdom on the foundation of His own indestructible life. And so as we go out today, I pray that we would go out hearing the call of the kingdom. Resist the world. Pursue godliness. Preach the gospel. I pray that call never lessens. But along with that call, I also pray that we go out hearing the confidence of the kingdom. What is the confidence of the kingdom, you ask? Well, God tells us in Revelation 11, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And so, with great confidence, we say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to behold the kingdom of God in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and to believe that that kingdom rests secure on Your promises and that therefore, Father, we can live confidently knowing that all the good things You have spoken for Your church will certainly come to pass in the Lord Jesus Christ. Fix our eyes on Him, God, we pray, and strengthen our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.